You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Chapter 28. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you got two options right now. One is, pull out your phone, and if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can follow along in there because we have uh, live notes in there every Sunday. You can follow along and kind of interact. There's even a little bit more in there than what you get up on the screen. So I encourage you to use that. On Sunday mornings, we've been studying through the book of Acts in our series titled Revolution. And we've been doing this for quite a while, but today we come to the end of this great book and the end of this series. Uh, We've been going through this book. We've gone through it from beginning to end. That's how we like to study uh, books of the Bible here at Whitefields. And so far, I looked at it yesterday, this is our 37th Uh, study, our 37th message in this series. Uh, If you missed any of them, if you're just joining us at church uh, recently, we encourage you, you can get all these online. Of course, they're all free and available to you. Uh, You can go back and listen to any of them or uh, re-listen to them if you'd like to. And that's, you know, one of the great benefits to studying the Bible this way is that when we get done with a book like this, we have this archive, this reference that we can always go back to and listen through an entire book of the Bible. And uh, we, we just believe that this way, studying the Bible, going through entire books and verse-by-verse teaching is just a great way to learn and to grow and to hear God's voice. Next week, we're going uh, gonna, to gonna be beginning a new study. And what's cool about the, this new study we're doing is that we're actually going to pick up right where the book of Acts leaves off. And uh, we're going to see Paul in a jail cell in Rome, which is where we're going to leave him here at the end of the book of Acts. And that's where we're going to pick up in our next study beginning next week. It's going to be a study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And the title of that series is The Pursuit of Happiness. So would you please pray with me as we open up to the last chapter, the final chapter of the book of Acts, chapter 28. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. You are a God who loves us. You are a God who isn't passive and far away, but you are a God who comes near to us, who has uh, knelt down to us to reveal yourself to us and to speak to us. And Lord, I pray that this morning we would hear your voice, that you would speak to us through your word and you give us ears to hear. Lord, that you would show us things that apply to our lives that we can put into practice as we seek you and as we want to walk with you. Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning to celebrate your grace, to embrace the gospel, and to grow. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So recently read in the news about some prisoners in Israel. And these prisoners in Israel are being compensated for some really interesting things uh, by the Israeli government. So this is a true story. Israeli judges have awarded thousands of dollars in compensation to prisoners who have complained that being in prison has, quote, adversely affected their quality of life, which I kind of thought was the point of prison, but apparently not. Now, one prisoner uh, received several thousand dollars compensation after he complained that he was having to share his jail cell with cockroaches, uh, and he filed a lawsuit against the state, and he claimed this, poor hygiene, a lack of fresh air, broken windows, and having to breathe secondhand smoke from other inmates. The judge who heard the case ordered that the prison not only had to pay compensation, but they had to improve this man's quality of life and fix all these problems. This one's even more crazy. This other inmate received a settlement of almost 50,000 U.S. dollars because he claimed that the food they were feeding him in jail had caused him 
to gain weight. Like, he got really fat. Like, he gained 50 pounds after just a couple of years of being in prison, and so he sued the state, and he won. And the spokesperson for the Israeli prison system said this, prisoners in our system have the right to sue us whenever they see fit, and we will comply with the decisions of the court. So these prisoners, obviously, they knew their rights, and they used these rights for their benefit. Now, such is the case with the Apostle Paul here at the end of the book of Acts. He's been imprisoned because of his Christian faith. And while in prison, he's been the victim of corruption. He's been the victim of injustice. But yet he knew his rights. And he played the one card, the one legal card that he had in his hand. And he appealed his case to Caesar. Now, this was the right of every Roman citizen who felt that they weren't getting a fair shake in the court system. And so when Paul did that, the authorities had no choice but to send him and his case to Rome where he would await trial before Caesar. In our study last week in chapter 27, we we saw Paul as he's being transported to Rome. He's on a journey by sea and he's being transported with several other prisoners, a couple hundred other prisoners, uh, most of whom not un, like Paul is going to an appeal hearing. Most of these other prisoners are actually going to face their death in the arenas in Rome. But in the course of this journey, they ran into a terrible storm in the Mediterranean Sea. They lost control of their ship. They were driven along by the storm for many days. They had no idea where they were. And they were on the verge of death. And finally, their boat crashed into an island. And that wooden ship was dashed into pieces. It was a complete loss, but everyone on board survived. So that's where we pick up the story today. The title of today's message is New Horizons. And here's what we're going to see in this study. Here's an outline for you who like, uh, for you note takers, you outline likers. Here's the outline for today. First of all, we're going to talk about this. Life is a struggle, but history is a masterpiece. Life is a struggle, but history is a masterpiece. And secondly, we're going to talk about the end but not really. The end, but not really. So let's read verses 1 and 2 in chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us, because it had begun to rain and it was cold. So Paul, we read in the end of last chapter, he's with 276 other people. They've shipwrecked onto the island of Malta. They were trying to go to Rome, but this storm took them so far off coast or off course that rather than going to Italy, they end up on Malta, which if you know where that's at, it's, it's right off the northern coast of Africa. Like they're, they're way off course. This is not at all where they wanted to go. It's not where they intended to go, but they're here. And it's pouring rain, it's bitterly cold, they've got no shelter, no transportation, their boat is destroyed. The only one nice thing that happens to them is that the local people come around and build them a fire to stay warm. Now I imagine Paul standing there on this beach in Malta, in the rain, very cold, looking around thinking, wow, I never expected that I would end up here. Maybe you have felt that way about different things in your life. You look around and you say, wow, I never expected that this is where I would end up, but yet here I am. Now here's something that Paul knew. There's something that gave him perspective on his life when things didn't go the way that he hoped or expected. And this is really one of the great themes of the book of Acts. We're not, you don't really get the book of Acts unless you understand this theme. It's also something which, if you know it, you will be much better off. And this is it. Life is a struggle, but history is a masterpiece. Now what do I mean by that? Three years prior to this moment, which we're reading about here, where Paul is standing on this beach in Malta, 
Paul was in Ephesus. He was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, and that was really the pinnacle of his ministry, the pinnacle of his success as a missionary and as a pastor. In Ephesus, Paul pastored a church, a thriving church that was having an incredible effect on the region and the city where they lived. He established what we would consider today a Bible school. And they were sending out people, they were training people, and then sending them out to start churches in the surrounding towns throughout that region. We also know that in Ephesus, Paul developed a lot of deep and meaningful friendships to the point where when he left, grown men were weeping when he left. And so it was, a, it was a very significant time in his life, maybe like the high point of his life. During that time in Ephesus, Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in Rome. Now, we don't know how the church in Rome began, but we do know that Paul did not start that church. Most likely, it was formed when people who had become Christians in other places of the Roman Empire moved to the capital city, and they came together and formed this church in Rome. But Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in Rome while he was in Ephesus, people that he had never met before, he had never been to Rome. And in that letter, which we have here in our Bibles, Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul gives them a very thorough explanation of the gospel, the core beliefs of Christianity. And I want to read to you what he says at the end of that letter. Here's, here's what he says. I have longed for many years to come to you, and I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. When there I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you, and I know that when I come to see you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This was Paul's plan before he left for Jerusalem. Little did he know what would actually happen. Little did he know that in Jerusalem he would be arrested, that he would be put in prison, that he would be jailed for two years awaiting just kind of bureaucracy, that people would try to kill him. Little did he know then that when he wrote out these plans, what actually awaited him. And it is kind of interesting, doesn't he say, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Except how does he end up coming? He ends up coming not as a tourist, not as a visitor, but as a prisoner. Did he still come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ? He pictured himself dropping off some cash in Jerusalem, then hopping on a boat, making a quick layover in Rome on his way to sunny Spain, triumphantly proclaiming the gospel and starting churches all along the way. But instead, here he is standing on a beach in Malta, soaking wet, having shipwrecked. He's not a tourist. He's a prisoner. Life is a struggle. Life is a struggle. Check out what happens next, verse 3. The next day, or sorry, wrong chapter, next, uh, verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. Well, if it wasn't enough, right? If it's not enough what he's been through over the last several years, if it wasn't enough to be shipwrecked and have to swim to shore through freezing water, to stand outside with no shelter in the freezing rain, now this, a viper, a poisonous snake, the, the bite of the snake was deadly. Now put yourself in Paul's shoes. How do you feel? After all of this, here you are, and this is how you're going to die. You've got this snake attached to your hand, and you're like, wow, I, I dedicated my life to serving you, God. I followed what I believed to be God's leading me to go to Jerusalem to do something nice for the people there. And look where it's gotten me. Beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked on some desolate island, wet and cold, and now this is how I'm going to die. 
bitten by a poisonous snake. Why, God, why? What, what is the point of all of this? Why all these things? I gave you my life. But isn't that precisely it? Isn't that it right there? Paul gave God his life. He stepped out in faith. He said, God, I want you to use my life to accomplish your purposes. I'm giving it to you for however you want to use it. Let me tell you this. There's nothing that will guarantee you more adventure than giving your life to God and asking him to use you for his purposes. Now, maybe you would ask, well, how could it be God's purpose that Paul be imprisoned wrongfully? How could it be God's purpose that Paul would be caught in a storm at sea or be bitten by a poisonous snake and land on this island of Malta? Well, let's think about it for a second. Was Paul the only person on that boat who got caught in that storm? No, there were 276 other people on that same boat in that same storm. Now think about Malta. Was Paul the first person who you think ever got bit by one of these poisonous snakes? Not at all. These people who live on Malta, they had probably seen their family members, their loved ones bitten by these snakes for generations. But with Paul, here's what these people get, which it's something special that these people get. They're getting to see how a Christian reacts to these same difficulties that they experience themselves. How does a Christian react in the middle of a storm? How does a Christian react when the snake bites? How does a Christian react to the same storm that I'm in too? You see, we're, we're in the same boat, but this guy who's a Christian, is he really any different? Does his faith really make any concrete difference in his life? How about when the doctor comes in and says, it's cancer? Certainly you wouldn't be the first person who ever had cancer, but the thing is, it's moments like this when the rubber hits the road, so to say, do you really believe this? Do you really have hope for this life and beyond? Do you really trust God in all circumstances? That's when it really shows up. Anybody can be optimistic when things are going great, but when the snake bites, when you're in the middle of a storm, See, these are the times when your faith is revealed, when it's revealed whether or not there is really this radical difference that hope makes, that the hope of the gospel makes in your life. So I had a friend in Hungary, and when he was 18, he was diagnosed with cancer, terminal cancer. He had a very bad prognosis. They gave him less than a year to live, and they put him on chemotherapy right away. You know, all his hair fell out. He got very weak, you know, kind of, you, you've seen what that looks like. And he, he would talk to the other cancer patients about how he wasn't afraid to die because he trusted in Jesus. He had hope because of Jesus. He would tell this to the doctors. He would tell it to the, uh, the other patients with him in the, in the ward as he's getting his therapy. Now, it's one thing for me to say that, to talk about hope beyond circumstances, to talk about hope beyond the grave. And it's true. It really is, no matter who says it. But it is another thing. There's a different dynamic. There's more power to it when it comes from someone who's actually dying of cancer. And yet, in spite of the cancer, they have confidence that no matter what happens, because of Jesus, they know, they know that they know that they are loved by God and they have been justified and redeemed and they will spend eternity in heaven. You know, sometimes difficulty is the agent which reveals the reality of Christ in your life to other people. Let me say that again because it's important. Sometimes difficulty is the agent which reveals the reality of Christ in your life for other people. One of the most profound ways that you may ever testify to your faith in the gospel is by how you react to the difficulties and hardships in your life. That is one of the most profound ways that you will ever testify to the gospel. Because, see, here's the thing. Other people go through hard stuff, too. 
And if your faith in the gospel causes you to react in a way that's radically different than how most people are reacting, because you have hope, you have confidence because of Jesus, people will take notice of that. How could they not? It will speak volumes. So here's the masterpiece. Sorry, here's the perspective that the gospel gives us. That although life is a struggle, history is a masterpiece. Again, what do I mean by that? Well, let's look at the next couple verses and I'll explain. Verse 4. When the native people saw that creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Perfect, right? Now, in the neighborhood of that place where lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured, and they honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put us on board with whatever we needed. Paul gave his life to God. He stepped out in faith and said, God, my life is yours. Use it for your purposes. I belong to you. Let my life be a penny in your pocket that you spend wherever and however it pleases you. And this is what happened. Paul gives his life to God and says, okay, God, it's yours, and here's what God does with it. Paul gets put in jail. He goes through a storm. He gets shipwrecked. He gets bitten by a poisonous snake. Life is a struggle. Each of these things on its own is pretty bad. Life is a struggle, but here's the perspective the gospel gives us. Even though life is sometimes a struggle, history is a masterpiece that God is creating. Because when you step back, when you zoom out, from the details and the momentary struggles, you see the big picture. You see the grand masterpiece of what God is doing in all of this stuff through all of these struggles, and you say, wow, that's amazing. Paul wanted to go to Spain. That was his plan, but God wanted to reach the people of Malta. See, Paul uh, wanted to just get on his way and, and get there, but God wanted to use Paul to minister to 250 prisoners who were about to die in Rome. See, Paul wanted to just pop in to Rome for a week on his way to Spain, but God is going to have Paul spend two years in Rome. If you look at the struggles of this life alone, you might conclude what Macbeth concluded in Shakespeare's play. Do you know what Macbeth said about history? He said, history is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. A tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's history. The Bible says, no, no way. History is a masterpiece that God is creating, that he has planned from eternity. And this is one of the most important themes of the book of Acts. It's so important that we personally get a hold of this, take a hold of it, and let it sink down deep in our minds and our hearts. Life is a struggle, but history is a masterpiece. See, we live in a broken world where bad things happen, where people hurt each other and do bad things, where sickness and death and sin are the realities that all of us have to grapple with. But yet God rules over it all. And and he is weaving all of these things together like a tapestry. The shipwrecks, the snake bites, the mistreatments, all the struggles. And he's working them together to create a masterpiece. Now turn with me, if you would, to one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 2. 
It's my go-to text, one of my favorite texts in the Bible. In Ephesians 2, Paul explains to us very concisely the heart of the gospel. He tells us, first of all, who we are as people, and then he tells us who God is, and then he tells us what God's plans for us are. So he starts out in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and he says this, You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the pattern of this world, fulfilling the passions of your flesh, and you were by nature children of wrath along with the rest of mankind. This is the human condition apart from God. You might be alive physically. Your mind might function just fine. But you are dead spiritually. You, are, you stand condemned apart from God. But here's the good news of the gospel. He goes on in, in verse 4. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved you. Even when you were dead in your trespasses, he made you alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised you up and seated you with him in the heavenly places. So that in the ages to come, he might show his, uh, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you in Christ. That is what God has done for you. He saved you. Not because of anything you did to deserve it. Not because you earned it. What can a dead person do to earn anything? I don't know if you've ever spent time with dead people, but they're really, they don't do much. They're not a lot of fun and they, they're really bad workers. See, that's the point. If you're a dead person, you can't work for anything. He says he saved you. Not because of anything you did to deserve it, but because of the kindness and because of his love for you. And rather than condemnation, he made a way for you to go to heaven for Jesus, through Jesus, because of what Jesus did for you. But there's more. He says in, in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And that's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of works, so that no one can boast. Have you ever wondered, does God have a plan for my life? And if so, what is it? The answer is, absolutely yes, God has a plan for your life. And here's the first part of that plan. Here's where it begins. God's desire, God's plan for your life is that you would put your faith in him, in who Jesus is and what he did for you, what he accomplished for you on the cross. The Bible says this in the the book of Romans. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth He confesses, resulting in salvation. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the first part of God's plan for your life, that you would believe, that you would put your faith and your trust in Jesus. But that's not all. There's more. And the next part's really exciting. Here's what he says. For you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Again, back to what I've been saying. God is working all of history together, creating a grand masterpiece which he planned from the beginning of time, a glorious masterpiece which would showcase his love, showcase his power, showcase his faithfulness and his grace. And what the Bible is telling us is that he uses our lives to create that masterpiece. That's actually what that word there means, that you are his workmanship. It's the word in Greek, poema, which means a work of art. You are his masterpiece. He's creating this masterpiece. He's doing it through your life, through my life. He has prepared good works beforehand for you to walk in them. And what that means is that there's a plan. 
That it isn't just happening randomly. That it isn't, as Macbeth said, that history is just a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, meaning nothing. No. History is a masterpiece designed by God, taking all of the strands and weaving them together into a tapestry that he's planned all along. And he has already planned good works for you to walk in them. God has already planned that Paul would go to Malta. God had planned beforehand the good works that Paul would walk in them. In the moment, these things seem like struggles, don't they? Shipwrecks, snake bites, imprisonment, struggles. But in the big picture, this is part of a masterpiece that God has been planning, he's been creating throughout history that, that he is going to bring to completion ultimately. And in the end, we'll step back and we'll look at it and we'll say, look at that. Life is a struggle at times, but history is a masterpiece. It's interesting that in the book of Revelation, it talks about the end of times, and it says that the people who stood in heaven looked at everything, at the end of everything, and they said, true and just are your judgments, O God. In other words, they said, stood at the end of time, and they said, wow, everything, this was a masterpiece. Everything you did, it was so right. If you've ever been whitewater rafting, you know how it goes, right? You have a guide, and you're on a boat with several other people, and the guide has probably been down that river hundreds, maybe thousands of times. They probably go down it several times a day. But when you hit the rapids, there's something that happens. There are some people who are on the boat, on that, you know, the raft, and they begin to panic when they hit the rapids, don't they? They're nervous. They curl up in a ball. They hate every second of it. But then there are other people who, when they hit the rapids, they're bouncing around and they're, they're having fun, they're hooting, and they're, they're enjoying it. They find it exhilarating. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, they're in the same boat. And here's the deal. The people who panic are just as safe as the people who are enjoying the ride. They're in the same boat. They've got the same captain. They're going to have the same destiny, ultimately, whether they crash or whether they don't. The difference is the people who are enjoying the ride actually trust the captain, that he's going to see them through, that, that he knows that even though the water's rough, the captain knows exactly what he's doing, and he's going to bring them through to safety. Now, I wonder if that's a metaphor for our lives. How about you? Are, are you going to trust the captain and enjoy the ride, even when it's bumpy, or are you going to be panicking when things get bumpy? Panicking doesn't actually change anything. You see, when you really take hold of this truth, that though life is sometimes bumpy, that though there's, there are struggles in life, history is God's masterpiece. You know what effect that has on you? Here's the effect it has on you. When the storm comes and, and it, it pushes your boat to Malta rather than Italy, then you say, well, I trust that this is a masterpiece that God is creating, so God must have a plan with this. When your plans are to go to Spain, and you don't make it to Spain, everything falls apart, you rest in the knowledge that God is in control. Here's one more thing I want to point out before we move on. When that snake bit Paul on the hand, the local people, you, did you remember what they said? They said, wow, this guy must be a murderer or a really bad person because justice will not allow him to live. There's some kind of divine judgment tried to kill him in that shipwreck, but somehow he made it out of the shipwreck. So now justice won't let him live, and now the snake is biting him. This snake is divine justice for this man. Surely he's done some terrible things. Now, we've been studying the life of Paul, and is that true? Was he a murderer? Did he do terrible things? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and assuming that Paul could understand what these people were saying about him, he must have thought to himself or said out loud, 
You're absolutely right. I have done some terrible things. I totally do deserve divine judgment. Raw justice would indeed require that I die for what I've done. But then Paul would remember Jesus. The divine judgment that he deserved for the things that he had done, it, it was poured out upon Jesus on the cross. On the cross, justice for sin was satisfied. The snake of divine justice, it it bit Jesus and its fangs were torn out. Its fangs remained in Jesus so that now it has no teeth, it has no venom. It can bite but it has no sting because Jesus absorbed it all. Do you know that justice has been satisfied for you? That is the message of the gospel. Now let's go on and as we go on, we're going to see Paul finally arriving in Rome. Verse 11 tells us that they spent three months in Malta and then traveled to Rome. And in verse 14, you see that they arrive in Rome. Verse 15, we read that the Christians from Rome, hearing that Paul had arrived, they came out to meet him at the coast. And it says there that upon seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. I find that interesting because these are people he's never met before. These are kind of complete strangers to him. Uh, But yet, because of the bond that they share in Christ, their family, they have a shared experience of redemption and being forgiven and being born again, and that creates a bond that is thicker than blood. Let's read again from verse 16. When they came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked you, Uh, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere everywhere it is spoken against. So following his usual custom, Paul comes to Rome. He's a prisoner, but yet look at him. He still thinks of himself as a missionary. He's acting like a missionary. He comes to Rome, and the first thing he does, he reaches out to the local Jewish population. He wants them to know that in spite of everything that happened to him in Jerusalem, he has nothing but love for the Jewish people, and that his faith in Jesus is not a rejection of Judaism. It is a fulfillment. It is the fulfillment of Judaism. Let's continue reading verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Paul opened his Bible. He opened the Old Testament, and he showed them how all of it pointed to Jesus. The law was pointing to Jesus. The prophets, the Psalms, everything. It was all about this plan of God from the beginning of history to redeem the world through the Messiah, through Jesus. And some who heard this message believed and some didn't. And that's always how it is. But let me ask you today, how about you? How about you? Will you believe? Do you believe? 
I hope that you will. Let me tell you, full disclosure, my goal week in and week out is to show you the scriptures so that you will put your trust in Christ for salvation first, but also for every area of your life. Verse 25. After disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, to the prophet Isaiah, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. You know, the same thing is true of many people today. Some people can hear all the evidence, all the reasoning for why they should put their faith in Jesus, and yet they won't do it because they have closed their minds to the idea. Ironically, they have closed their minds. They're not even willing to consider it. And it's a tragedy because they don't give themselves the opportunity to consider the gospel with an open mind, to consider Jesus with an open mind, and maybe be persuaded and experience, in that case, the life that the gospel gives. Let's read the last two verses of the book. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul had to wait two years for his trial to come before Caesar. Caesar had a lot to do, so it took two years for his trial to come up. And during that time, he had to pay for his own expenses, which included Roman guards who would be chained to him. All day long, they would go in six-hour shifts. We're going to see in our next study in Philippians that some of these guys who were chained to Paul for six hours a day, uh, he had a captive audience, many of them became Christians. And Paul couldn't leave this place where he was being held, but people were allowed to come and visit him. And so Paul used this time uh, to pick up his pen also and write some letters. During his two years of imprisonment in Rome, Paul wrote four letters, which are now in our Bibles in the New Testament. They're known as the prison epistles. These are Paul's letters to the Philippians, the Ephesians, the Colossians, and to Philemon. And this is where the book of Acts ends. It's kind of a weird ending, don't you think? I mean, you kind of expect that you're just going to turn the page and there will be more uh, because it's kind of a non-ending, right? It's kind of a, it's no conclusion to this at all. The writer, Luke, just kind of leaves us hanging. We're left wondering, so whatever happened to Paul? I mean, you, he's been building up this whole time. Paul's going to speak to Caesar. Paul's going to speak to Caesar. Does Paul ever get to speak to Caesar? He doesn't tell us. We don't know. He just says, Paul lived in Rome for two years and then he stops writing. So this is the end, but not really. This is our second point. Probably the reason why the book ends here and doesn't tell us anything else about Paul's trial before Caesar is, is that the main theory about why this book was written, at least in part, was that it was written for this hearing, kind of as an informational brief for the uh, hearing, you know, who was Jesus, to give the background, to explain who was Jesus, what, what was Christianity all about, and who is Paul, and how did he come to be a Christian, and how did he end up in this situation, why are the Jewish people so mad at him, how did he get to Rome? But, but there's even more than that. See, I think this is actually a brilliant way for Luke to end this book, and here's why. Because at, here at the end of the book of Acts, Luke brings our attention back to what this whole book is actually about. So here at the end, he brings our attention back to what the book is actually about because you know what? It's not about Paul. In fact, it's not really about any of the apostles really. 
They're, they're kind of like uh, supporting actors in this movie. They're, they're secondary characters in this story. This book, you know what it's about? It's about the gospel. It's about the progress of the gospel. And that's why the last line of this book is so fabulous. It says this, the gospel was proclaimed with boldness and without hindrance. See, that's what this book is about. For Luke to end the book in this way is kind of like him saying, look at everything that got thrown at us. Look at everything that the world threw at us. We had opposition from without. We were persecuted. We were beaten, killed, imprisoned. We had problems from within. We had threats from within. People trying to tear the church apart from within. People embezzling money. People arguing amongst themselves about different doctrines and not getting along. We faced storms at sea. We faced snake bites. You killed and imprisoned our leaders. But look at all this opposition and realize this. You can imprison us. You can kill us. But the gospel cannot be stopped. The gospel can never be stopped. You know, the message of the book of Acts is this. The gospel can't be stopped. The progress of God's work in the world. You can put up whatever barriers you want. You can kill the preachers. You can put the Christians in prison. But no matter what you do, you will never be able to stop it. And here's why this is a brilliant ending to this book. Because it is a non-ending. Because it's not the end. The, The work of God, the progress of the gospel continues on. Whatever happens to Paul kinda doesn't matter. God's work will continue. The gospel will continue on to new horizons. See, there are a few things that we do know about what will happen to Paul after this. We know that Paul did eventually face trial before Caesar. The Caesar was Caesar Nero. And Paul was found not guilty. He was released. And he had about four to five years of freedom, during which time Clement of Rome, who was a late contemporary of Paul's, he writes and says that, Paul went during this four to five years, he went to Spain as he had always wanted to. He also went uh, to modern day Croatia and Bosnia there on the Balkan Peninsula as a missionary. But yet he ended up back in Rome under arrest and in 66 or 67 AD he was beheaded during the persecution of Christians which was led by Caesar Nero himself. But this story really isn't about Paul. I want you to understand that. After Paul's chapter in this story is over, the gospel continues on to new horizons. A new generation of Christians rose up after this and they took the baton and they ran with it and they carried the gospel to new horizons, to new people, to new places, to the ends of the earth. And the reason this story has no real ending is because the story's not over. It continues on. In fact, it continues on to this very day. This story of the Acts It it continues on. It's still being written even today. It has been said that each and every generation writes their own chapter to this story. Each generation of Christians writes their own chapter, their own book of Acts, if you will, the stories of the great things that God did in their generation and, and through them as they stepped out in faith, as they stepped out in obedience and the power of the Holy Spirit. See, our generation's story, our chapter in this great story uh, of God's work in the world, of the progress of the gospel, it's being, written by, it's being written right now. It's being written through us. And let me ask you, do you want to be part of that story that God is writing in our generation? I'll tell you what, I know I do. I want to be part of that story. I want to be part of that story that God is writing in our generation of how God uses people, how God is taking the gospel into the world, changing lives, transforming families, changing entire communities and societies. I said at the beginning of this series that a more appropriate title for this book wouldn't be 
the acts of the apostles. It would be the acts of the Holy Spirit through ordinary people. See, that's what this book is about. These people weren't anything different than you and I. We were cut from the same cloth. See, the story continues on even to our day. And the reason this book has no end is because the story isn't over. It's still being written. So let me ask you, will you allow God to use you and write this story through you? Will we as a congregation be used by God to write this story in our place, in our generation? I pray that we will. And I encourage you to ask yourself that question. What is my place in the ongoing work of the writing of the book of Acts. Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have been doing throughout history. We look at this history of earliest Christianity and we see that it's not about Paul, it's not about Peter, it's not about the apostles, Lord. It's about the gospel and the gospel moving forward. And I thank you that in our generation, we get to be part of that. And I pray that we would be part of writing that story of what you're doing in this place and at this time. So Lord, we give ourselves to you much like Paul gave himself to you and said, my life is no longer mine. I give it to you. Lord, we do that same thing today. I pray for each of us here that we would come to that place in our hearts where we would say, God, my life is yours. Whatever and however you want to use it, let it be for your glory. Because Lord, we recognize that that though life is sometimes a struggle, we recognize that history is a masterpiece, and we thank you for that. We thank you that though the water is sometimes bumpy, we can trust the captain is going to see us through. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who hasn't yet made that decision. It's much like the people in our story who we read that they, they heard, but they didn't really hear. They saw, but they didn't really see. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who hasn't yet made that decision to say, you know what, I leave everything to follow Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would make that decision today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution Series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.